if people understand that all it takes is to prepare their meals, don't worry so much about lipids versus glucose or whatever, a little bit of everything, non-processed, and then this can reduce the level of overeating, we might so be able to solve the problem quite simply, right? Beatnik. Let's talk about health. Conversations about topics that improve your well-being. You're about to hear a conversation with Christian Wolfrum, professor at the Institute of Food, Nutrition and Health at the ETH Zurich, Switzerland. This is the Beatnik podcast number one. I'm Peter Bietenholz, your host and founder of Beatnik, a Los Angeles-based social enterprise that powers positive behavioral health. Next to our brand new podcast, we also have an extensive blog on Instagram at Beatnik with over 1,300 science-based entries that covers all aspects of health and well-being. So make sure to check it out and follow us there as well. I'm excited to welcome our first guest, Professor Christian Wolfrum, a nutrition scientist at Zurich's world-renowned ETH University. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, before we dive into the science of nutrition, what did you have for lunch today? Actually, I have to say I skipped lunch. Oh, you skipped lunch? But did you have uh, breakfast at least? No, also not. In general, are you, are you a conscious eater? Do you follow any particular food regimen? I'm a very conscious eater. I'm, I'm very careful about what I eat and... Uh, I have noticed that for me it's easier to leave out the breakfast rather than the dinner, so I usually have my first meal around noontime. Okay, actually that's what I do as well, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the intermittent fasting, so maybe that is part of what you're doing as well. I wouldn't call it intermittent fasting, but uh, we'll come to this, I think, during the talk for sure. Just out of curiosity, how has your work influenced your eating habits? I'm asking this because I had a doctor once who told me uh, that some doctors are not really good at following their own advice when it comes to their personal health. So I wonder how that has influenced you in your daily food choices over the years. I think it has influenced me. Well, I think we'll come to this maybe. If you understand a bit what is behind food and how the molecular mechanisms take place that govern uh, eating behavior, that govern the energy extraction from the food, I think you make a bit more conscious decisions uh, about what you eat. Um, I would say this is a bit different from a doctor who looks more at a patient's health rather than at the underlying causes of food-related right. effects. So it definitely has influenced me quite massively. I mean, it's interesting because I think most people are now fairly well-educated when it comes to food, but still I think most of us um, struggle to make those right choices or better choices on a daily basis. I'm not so sure that we are really that well educated. The problem is that in nutrition science, we base a lot on observation of correlations right, yeah. and very little on causality. And uh, often these things are mixed up quite tremendously. And that leads to recommendations that are not supported by any scientific fact. And that, again, can cause a problem. 
I would actually say that we need to change our education on food science. It's, it's difficult. It's not that it's simple, but it has to be done uh, in order to improve uh, nutritional awareness. Oh, absolutely. Actually, that is the very reason why I wanted to start this podcast as well. Um, as I mentioned in my intro, we have a fairly... Um, extensive blog on Instagram, but Instagram is obviously a very visual media, so people don't really read what is written down there as a caption. And then also with uh, social media, you have all these influencers, you have a lot of people who give advice, especially when it comes to diets, when it comes to fitness, without having the necessary background, science background, medical background. I'm not sure it's always also their fault, right? The big problem is that there is a lot of nutritional science going on. And like in all fields of science, there's good and bad nutritional science. The problem is if even if there's interesting findings, often in the press they are oversold. Mm -hmm. uh, so the statements that you sometimes see are not what the scientists actually discovered or reported. And often even the scientists wouldn't sign this uh, mm -hmm. like this because science is way more ambiguous than some of these. You have to do this or you have to do that. And if we would understand that there's quite a big variation in there and maybe also a very personalized component, and we can discuss this later, mm -hmm. then I think we would have much less of a problem. Is this, this dogmatic view only this is the right way to lose weight. This is, I think, what causes the biggest problem. Right, right. So, uh, so before we dive more into all these different topics, we would like to learn a little bit about yourself, about your career, and what your journey so far uh, has been in uh, nutrition science. Yeah, okay. So actually, I might not be a real nutrition science in a classical sense. So I started, I'm, I'm a chemist by training, and I started quite early to specialize in lipid chemistry. And I was always very interested in bioactive principles of certain molecular species. So make it a bit easier, interested in different fatty acids and how they act in the body. Uh, they have, obviously, they're an energy source, but they're also a signaling molecule, so uh, specific fatty acids, like the very famous omega-3 fatty acids, they do more than just provide energy. Mm -hmm. They also regulate lots of processes. And that got me mainly into lipid science. And then I switched over to a bit more physiology during my postdoc, where I learned about uh, food-related or food-related health disorders, such as obesity, and uh, where I got more into the physiology of this all. And now that I'm at ETH, I... Uh, started to look again at food components that regulate metabolism. So not so much whether you should eat a lipid-free or a sugar-free diet, but rather what do the different constituents of a diet do? And are there specific components that might be beneficial or not? There's many, many examples. Resveratrol for a long time was one big example. So things like this, this is what interests me. And uh, this is why I also teach the nutrition class at ETH. Now, before you started with your studies, was there an initial spark that ignited your passion? Was it more of a general interest in science first? And then once you started your studies, you sort of discovered nutrition and and everything sort of like food related or actually if you think about it, there was a spark so uh, i started working in a lab of a very 
famous lipid biologist, Professor Friedrich Spener. He's now retired. And we worked on uh, proteins that transport fatty acids. And we found a very interesting fatty acid, phytanic acid. This is a spe very specific fatty acid with modification. It, 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 this is a very specific fatty acid with some modifications that you find a lot in goose fat. And that was for, and more or less exclusively in goose fat and uh, in certain fowls. And this was what got me interested that specific fats from different animals in this case, but you can apply this to plants as well, mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. very, very important properties in the okay. body and can actually have a massive influence on your metabolism. And that, that's where I started the whole work. And what drives you? Uh, why are you doing what you're doing? I always find that a very interesting question when I talk to people because what is it that drives them? Is it for you maybe because you want to improve public health on a on a on a bigger scale or I, I think it's two things. On the one hand, I, I would consider myself a scientist. So I think curiosity is one of the big drivers. Right. And there it doesn't matter so much. Uh, you are in an area. You are in an area that you find interesting and you follow this. But I have to say in the last few years, I would have really, I would really like to also participate in something that improves public health, both on the, we are working a bit in the pharmaceutical area, but also on the nutrition side. Mm -hmm. So would be fine if you can generate a tool, a compound, something that can actually translate into improved health. Um, but I think the main driver is scientific curiosity still. What does a day in the life of Christian Wolfram look like? I guess, do you teach? Do you do mainly research, both? I would say it's both. Um, teaching a bit less than research. Uh, so I, I teach a lot of classes, uh, mainly revolving around nutrition on the one hand and then around physiology and metabolism and then pathophysiology of metabolism like obesity and type 2 diabetes. Uh, these are the classes I teach and some practical courses that we teach at ETH at all levels from the bachelor to the PhD level and quite recently also for the medical uh, doctors, even advanced studies uh, sections for the medical doctors. And the rest of the time is research. I mean, uh, we run a lab, we mm -hmm, mm -hmm. think about things, we uh, propose ideas, we test them experimentally if we can, and mm -hmm, then uh, mm -hmm. this promotes then the next scientific steps, and that's how, in general, a scientific lab moves forward. Is there an exchange with other universities from other countries as oh, yes. well? Yes, yes, yes. So I think science has become more and more globalized, so we are interacting with many, many people, not just within Switzerland, but around the world, uh, more or less everywhere, wherever there's a common interest or a shared technology vision or something, then we work together. So, so we have really a lot of collaborations mm -hmm. all over the world. Mm -hmm. Has this discipline gained a lot of popularity over the years? Because when I look back when I was a kid, it seems diets and nutrition was not that big of a topic, at, at least not in the media like now, where you read something about food and nutrition and diets almost on a daily basis, it seems. So it's why, why do you think that is? I, I think this has to do with the fact that we are in an, yeah, what the people call an uh, 
epidemic wave of obesity, right? I mean, I think the World Health Organization puts obesity as one of the five threats to humanity. We shouldn't ignore this. 30% of the world are overweight or obese. And so far, any type of pharmacological or lifestyle intervention seems to have failed because the exponential growth, at least in some countries, is, is continuing. Maybe in the European and the U.S. countries, it's just linear growth by now, but it's still increasing. It's not decreasing. And uh, if pharmacological tools fail or uh, lifestyle intervention fails, then nutrition is obviously a choice to do something about this obesity epidemic. Whether it will work is one thing, but it clearly can influence it for sure. And that's why I think the interest has increased as more and more people face health consequences. The other aspect is that I think the population ages and the older you get, the higher your chances of certain comorbidities are. Mm -hmm. And nutrition is one way to modulate your risk. Mm -hmm. Mm. Your, your nutrition is not there to treat really, but really to prevent disease onset. Maybe in certain aspects you can also say you can use it to treat, but often nutrition is thought as a preventive tool, and that's why it's gained so much interest, I think. Now, to go a step back perhaps, what exactly is the science of nutrition? And also I'm interested kind of in a historical context when did the science of nutrition begin and why? Was there some point in history when somebody somewhere said, okay, I think it's time that we study what we eat and what it does to our bodies? Approximately at what period or time in history was that? I, I, I could say you can go back as far back as Hippocrates, right? Let thy okay. food be thy medicine. Okay. I mean, even okay. then they recognized that nutrition is relevant for health. Uh, so it has always been a topic. It's more a question how you do nutritional sciences, right? A, a lot of nutritional sciences has probably been done by observing and testing. So certain people eat certain things and how does this affect their health outcome? So that's an observational way to do things. And in recent years, it has moved towards a more interventional um, system where you actually take people, you randomize them, you give them certain foods and look what happens. And in the last, I think, 10 years, it has always been done, but I think a bigger focus has shifted towards the underlying mechanisms, understanding why a certain mm -hmm. food does something to your health in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Because if you understand why, it's much better or much easier to predict later mm -hmm. on what will happen in a cert certain experiment mm -hmm. than if you're just testing without knowing what is happening. Mm -hmm. So in nutritional sciences always, but I think the way they were conducted have shifted. What do we consider good nutritional health? And also, has that changed over the years, over the centuries maybe, um, because maybe what we consider good nutritional health now is probably is much higher because we also we have a much higher standard of living than let's say maybe 100 or 200 years ago. It's a super tricky question. It's an excellent question, but I, I'm not sure you can answer this correctly, right? Nutritional health means that your nutrition is balanced so your organism or you as an organism when we talk about metabolic health, you don't gain weight, you don't develop any metabolic disorders. But on the other hand, you can argue also good nutritional health is something that uh, reduces your risk for cancer. 
mm-hmm. or for other uh, for neurodegenerative disorders mm-hmm. because we know that nutrition is involved there as well. Now we have another problem. Nutrition is also a component that satisfies people, right? That gives pleasure. So if you eat only very, very healthy, you might neglect the psychological side of food, which is this this dopaminergic side, this hedonic side, that mm-hmm, food is, mm-hmm. is pleasurable. And then you're also maybe not, that that might also be unhealthy to completely deny that side. So I, I don't think there's a perfect answer to this. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. The, the biggest problem is that it's also very individualized. Some people don't mind eating certain foods, others hate them. Mm-hmm. And so for them, this might not necessarily be healthy, it might be healthy from a pure physiological point of view, but from a psychological point of view, it might be extremely unhealthy. So I don't think there's a perfect answer to this. You have to find a diet that keeps you mentally happy mm-hmm. and uh, keeps the body healthy, right? Mm-hmm. And you will have to make trade-offs on one side or the other right. because right. the perfectly healthy diet is probably not very tasty. It's interesting what you just mentioned because I do think especially in this day and age, there seems to be almost a love-hate relationship with food. Um, on the one side, you know, there is all these gourmet cuisine, all these all these chefs who became huge stars now. And then on the other side, especially when it comes to diets, and I'm sure we will touch on that when we speak about diets a little bit more in detail, they seem to really struggle with their daily choices and the food almost becomes the enemy, an eternal battle that goes on for months and years and and. and That is because of this problem that the world has, right? We have a problem of overweight people. This is, is, for them, it's a problem because it it increases your risk for developing secondary comorbidities. So this means that you have to adjust your food so you're reducing that risk. On the other hand, we have this problem of production. Uh, the food that is probably not so healthy but quite tasty is very cheap to yeah, produce. Yeah, yeah. The food that is healthier, it, maybe cheap is also not the correct term. It's fast. Uh, while food that might be healthier would take a much more time. And time is obviously nowadays a bit of a commodity. Absolutely. And uh, if there's not sufficient time to produce food in the quality that you need, or that you should eat, let's put it like this, then you can can run into these problems. I I think that's what causes this, right? Quick food, probably quite pleasurable, but from a metabolic standpoint, quite unhealthy. Mm -hmm. You could generate very tasty food that's quite healthy. Also from Mm -hmm. the high-end chefs that you mentioned, most of that stuff that is probably sold is, from a health perspective, okay, Mm -hmm. right? Well, and then I think the other thing is also there are obviously economic reasons. Um, the, the fact is that outside of the first world, I guess, you know, people don't really have the economic means to to buy healthy food. And even within the first world, we have these issues, especially in a country like in the U.S., where a lot of people, you know, don't have the money to buy organic food, so... That leaves them with fast food, uh, which is cheap and affordable, and it's fast and easy to consume. 
and that probably contributes to the problem as well. But, but may I ask you, I, I, this is something that is put forth all the time. On the other hand, you could theoretically, organic is one thing, but mm -hmm. let's say you buy the vegetables, you buy uh, the meat. Probably if you buy on a lower grade scale, you can probably still get this quite cheap, but you have to prepare it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So is it really the money or is it the time? I, I'm not so sure about this. I, I, the more and more I see it, I, I don't think it's because if you go to an American supermarket, you can still buy cheap vegetables mm -hmm. there and you can buy cheap meat there. You can buy cheap dairy products there mm -hmm. and prepare a real meal, mm -hmm. right? But it takes quite a lot of time. That and, takes and, time. And I think that's also kind of a socioeconomic problem as well because even if you would like to prepare your kids a fresh cooked meal every day, but you have to work two jobs every day, then it becomes a huge issue. And I think that's what's going on on a large scale, at least in the U.S. Yeah, I think this is the time is more of an issue than the mm -hmm. actual costs. Mm -hmm. If you factor in the time into the costs, of course, then this is costs in total. What are some of the current trends that you see or how do you think nutrition, our diets are going to develop in the next few decades? So this is a very good point and that I think illustrates what the problem is, right? I, we are both old enough to remember, first it was the cholesterol. Nobody was allowed to eat eggs anymore, right? Uh, when the first cardiovascular trials came out. Then one noticed that it's completely irrelevant how much cholesterol you eat because it's rather the saturated fat in the diet that causes the cholesterol to rise. So this was, again, very good correlation, cholesterol and cardiovascular health, but very bad recommendation based on the correlation. Then it was for a while low fat. Then it became for a while low sugar. Uh, now we are talking vegetarian and vegan. Uh, we have the intermittent fasting. There's a new trend uh, every few weeks, more or less, right? There's so many diets. I, I can't even keep track of all of them. And if you then do a rigorous scientific comparison, it more or less doesn't matter what you do, right? So, so this is the problem. At the moment, all these nutritional trends that are coming up, mm -hmm. that are coming up from a health nutrition point of view, a vegetarian and vegan has a different component with regards to sustainability, mm -hmm. which I'm not touching on here, right? Uh, if you compare them later on, it turns out that uh, this is not so effective in reality. And, and we should consider why it is not, because that can maybe help us understand what the problem is. Absolutely. I think that's one of the big problems and one of the big um, frustrations that we have all encountered when it comes to eating healthy, because opinions seem to change every every few years. Like you said, you know, at some point it says, okay, now you only have to eat carrots. And then a, a few years later, all of a sudden it says, oh, wait a minute, we found out that carrots are bad for you. So it, it's very, it's very, it's very difficult to make sort of like good educated choices when it comes to food. But maybe from that historical perspective, we can make some conclusions mm -hmm. what is wrong maybe with these suggestions and what we could do better. And I think that's where we're moving to, uh, towards a better understanding what these diets are doing and what this means. I mean, we can dive into it. I have my opinions on this, but we now, for example, let's take the processed food. The processed food, which is also contains uh, McDonald's or other, um, am I allowed to say McDonald's? 
Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. sure. No okay, the processed food, <laughs> which also contains uh, uh, diets that you eat at McDonald's, is really one of the only foods where you have really good scientific evidence that this is a problem. There was an excellent study a few years ago uh, from Hall et al. published in Cell Metabolism, where they compared people with a diet, similar composition with lipids and sugar and protein, processed versus non-processed. And the people that ate the processed diet overate by 500 kilocalories a day. This is a huge amount. And this was even a crossover design. So very well done. And they uh, locked the people into the uh, unit, right? So they really only ate what they, what they could eat and was monitored. We can come to this later. This is another problem of nutritional science. So we now know processing is an issue. And that brings us back to what we discussed before, right? You don't have time to prepare a meal. You move towards processed food. And uh, the processed food is clearly not good for you. Yeah. And this poses a big problem for the vegetarian, the vegan industry, because we are moving now into processed vegetarian and vegan meals. We mm -hmm. don't know yet if they are really healthier. Okay. If the processing is one of the issues, then we'll have the same problem there than we did before. Mm -hmm. right? So this brings us always back to the original point. We had less of a problem when people prepared their meals instead of switching to processed foods. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the future of nutrition of food, what will that look like? I, I mean, you know, like they say, okay, at some point, instead of meat, we're going to eat insects, bugs, whatever. Uh, is that sort of like where we're heading? It definitely will be a component, but I don't think this will be due to the fact that it's healthier, but just for sustainability reasons, right? Uh, to, to have a source of protein that is easily to grow. Insects are obviously a good choice, but this is not necessarily a health aspect to reduce the levels of metabolic uh, disorders. I quite honestly think we need to move, whether we will move there, I don't know, but we'll need to move towards a more individualized approach. And we personally, and that's my strong personal belief, we have to move away from processed foods and understand what the problem is in processing that causes people to overeat. When we understand this, then maybe we can find a way around it, mm -hmm. right? Because in the end, the whole issue with overweight is, is a very simple thing, right? You eat more than you expand, uh, expand. And if you eat more than what you spend, then obviously this is uh, deposited somewhere. And that's how you gain weight. So right. if we're talking about these kind of diets, I think we have to first of all go towards this processing issue and towards an individualized point, mm -hmm. which we can discuss mm -hmm. also. How do we move away from processed food? I mean, there is such a huge, tremendous industry behind it, I assume, um, with a lot of political influence as well. I mean, that that seems to be one of the biggest challenges ahead of us. This is a good point. This will probably not be easy, but this brings us back to your original discussion. If people understand that all it takes is to prepare their meals, don't worry so much about lipids versus glucose or whatever, a little bit of everything, non-processed, and then this can reduce the level of overeating we might so be able to solve the problem quite simply, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we move away from the processed food? It, this is a tricky point, right? It's, it's simple, it's easy, it's a convenience issue. and But this comes back to the original point that you mentioned, health awareness. And I think people are 
following these very simple rules, eat less sugar, eat less lipids, eat less fat, right? Eat only protein, do this diet, do that diet. But if people start to understand, first of all, there's an individual component. I'd like to discuss this also. Mm -hmm. But that processing is maybe something that is detrimental, then it's it's not so difficult. Theoretically, if you had time, you could prepare meals again, right? And maybe this could even be a niche, a market niche for businesses or restaurants or whatever and with a health label, basically, if you want. So I, I think there is a possibility, but we have to get away from these very dogmatic, you cannot eat sugar, you cannot eat lipids, to a bit more broader understanding what constitutes healthy food and maybe also on an individual level. And then hopefully this will change how people yeah, change, eat in the future. Yes, I think it's also, it's also something uh, that belongs back into education because I think there are a lot of kids um, that do not learn how to prepare food because at home it, nobody really cooks there as well. You know, you have a lot of parents, you know, who bring home takeaway food or they tell their kids, hey, you know, I have to work late. Why don't you order something? Um, so so I do think that would be something that needs to address on a school education level as well. I 100% agree. So that's what I said, right? If you can educate people again, what is healthy food without this dogmatic uh, use of certain ingredients, then we have solved the big problem. And um, I think, but I think I've see, I see people, especially in Switzerland, maybe the US is a bit different, but in Switzerland, you see people moving towards this prepare your own meals, control over the ingredients and things like this. So I think it's doable. U.S. is probably two jobs a bit more difficult, mm -hmm. but maybe this is also a possibility that through education also change the system. We actually, we stage an event series called the Yoga Kitchen Kids, and it's basically, it's a yoga class first for parents and kids, and then after that it turns into sort of like a cooking demo and it's really fun I mean especially for the kids because we show them for example okay everything that is colorful is healthy you know if it's fruits or vegetables if it's red or yellow or green it's healthy you know and that's sort of like our our contribution to show kids very early on what is good for you and what is not good for you and then perhaps when they go to the grocery stores with their parents and the kid says, hey, you know, I want that yellow thing or I want that green thing because I learned that's good to you. I think that's sort of like where you could start from a grassroots level, if you will, up. I think that's the way to go, right? In the end, everybody makes a choice about their food. And until you, you cannot force people and uh, you can force to a certain extent by changing prices or taxation, but people have to choose this themselves correctly. But may maybe this brings us to this individualized level, what I was talking about. So we've heard about the low carb, we've heard about the low fat diet, just to name the two biggest ones, right? Mm -hmm. If you compare them side by side in a trial under controlled conditions, it's really not much difference overall. The problem is that there's huge individual variation. 
Mm-hmm. And this is another aspect of nutritional science. You cannot generalize that easily. Mm-hmm. Let's think you want to lose weight, right? So this is a diet in which you eat less than you actually spend each day in energy. So the body will fight against this, right? The body will want at least um, the amount of energy that it uh, needs during the day because the body likes to keep its weight no matter where you are. So what does the diet actually mean? The diet means that you have to find a way to eat less than you actually spend and that it's least problematic for you or that it's the least uh, has the least detrimental effect on your mental health, on your well-being and how you feel. And for some people, it's easier to leave out sugar and other mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. can leave out fat. And I think this is the big problem because adherence is in the end what matters. If somebody f- sees, oh, I can, I can leave out the sugar in my diet, then it's probably a very simple way of reducing your weight. Mm-hmm. Another person can very easily get rid of the fat and maybe he needs a bit more sugar or she, right? So, and I think this is the problem. This, you have to do a low-carb diet. This is not the correct way. You have to find a diet that works for you. And it can be one or the other. It can be even intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting compared to other dietary forms is also not better. The larger trials mm-hmm. are quite clear. It was a very nice recent meta-analysis just this year. Sorry, even intermittent fasting is not better. But it might be very good for some people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where we have to, if people understand, I have to f- pick the diet that works for me and then follow it because it has to work a long time, right? Not just a few weeks. Then you have your step further. We are not there yet that we can test people and say, oh, you might be a good candidate for this or that. That's, I think, where nutrition science is currently moving to see if you can identify whether a person might be better for an intermittent fasting or might be better mm-hmm. for a sugar-free diet or whatever. Um, maybe this is possible to stratify people with a simple test, but we are definitely not there yet. I think that is exactly one of the problems in the media and social media in particular. If there seems to be this sort of like one-size-fits-all approach, it were one day they say, hey, you have to do intermittent fasting or you have to do a low carb fast or whatever and 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 that is you know the question what can what can science do and this is actually one of the things um, I wanted to discuss as well um, are there current efforts by um, universities to sell science better um, when I started my Instagram blog um, I realized there is a tremendous amount of information out there. Um, the problem is, I think most people, they don't know that. Are there efforts where universities and science departments, individual science departments say, okay, how are we going to advertise, if you will, or like how do we sell, how do you communicate science to a large public? I think this is a very good point, and I think this is something that the universities have neglected, not just in the field of nutrition. This is true for the field of climate, energy, and all these things. And I think universities understand now that they have to enter into a dialogue with society and also 
present uh, their efforts. So ETH, the ETH domain, right, which consists of several institutions like EPFL and some others, they have um, outreach uh, and dialogue with society as one of their main focus areas on the same level as, for example, health. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, and I, I think this is important because uh, in a world where we live on lots of I wouldn't say fake news, but uh, half-truth mm -hmm. or wrongly based uh, assumptions based on data that are wrongly made. We need to have people who very carefully say, this is supported by science and this is not supported. This is what I'm trying to say, right? There's, in nutritional science, The data is not as clear as some people like to make it. It's not nice. People would like a perfect recommendation, but it doesn't exist. So you have to rather educate them on the whole principle behind it and say, look, it probably depends on you. Um, there's a certain amount of information on, for example, processed food. But on all the other aspects, there's a big individual vari variability. So <clears throat> we might not be able to tell you what is the best diet for you, but at least it's an honest mm -hmm. answer. It's, as usual, the... Correct answers are always not as easy and straightforward, but they have to be communicated, right? Because I think the concept is not so complicated and people will understand mm -hmm, it maybe mm -hmm. that there's some things you can do and other things that are just hypes. You can ignore them. They are not relevant, right? I mean, uh, in the end, everybody can listen to his own body and um, maybe make an adjustment that works for, this, for him or her. Mm -hmm. According to the United States Department of Agriculture, the average American adult eats almost 2,000 pounds of food per year. That includes 31 pounds of cheese, 85 pounds of fats and oils, 273 pounds of fruit, and 415 pounds of vegetables. I mean, that is a ton of food. I mean, especially if you accumulate that over a lifetime, we're, we're talking about, you know, with a life expectancy rate that is now somewhere between 80 and 90 years, you know, that's 80 to 90 tons of food that goes through our body. That is just mind-boggling. Yeah, uh, but actually the numbers show that the vegetable consumption is not so bad, huh? Well, actually, I was, I was just about to say, I was, I was really surprised when I saw that. But um, is it the vegetables that are also present in tomato ketchup? Exactly. So exactly. this is the point, right? So, One has to be careful with the statistics. When we talk about individual weight, what are some of the factors that influence weight in terms of, I guess, biological, hereditary lifestyle choices, and so on and so forth. So there's clearly a strong hereditary component. This is uh, an issue that is well known. Uh, weight is uh, inherited. Whether this is all genetics or whether there's an aspect of epigenetics, it's not well understood. It's clear that um, the social environment plays a role, so how uh, a person is trained, how to eat. This is something that gets integrated into a personality and then translated later on. Um, so this is clearly huge factors. This is why some people don't have to worry about what they eat, right? Mm -hmm. These people exist. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's uh, very few, but uh, they do exist. And others have huge problems uh, with maintaining their weight. This is something that's just recently become a bit more focus of research 
because we don't and so if you if you start to diet your energy expenditure drops yeah? so the body uses up a certain amount of calories each day just to keep up basal metabolism and if you diet this drops so the body defends its body weight mm -hmm. by reducing its energy requirements probably not the ones that you need to function but there seem to be some surplus requirements that you can reduce <laughs> which have to do maybe with uh, how the body functions. And some people don't seem to drop their energy expenditure so much. This is something that's completely not understood at the okay. moment. But it's one aspect that uh, falls into the category reducing food intake coupled with exercise usually works way better than doing just one or the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the same with exercising. Losing weight by exercise is quite tricky. Because a lot of people then just compensate what they spend in exercise by eating a bit more. And actually, yeah, actually, I was I was told, or I, or I think I read somewhere that it's better to watch your diet and do less exercise than doing a lot of exercise and have a poor diet. Oh, def definitely. I mean, uh, but I would not underestimate the exercise. Uh, the exercise helps you yep. even if you don't lose weight. So that's a very interesting aspect. Exercise has a huge effect on metabolic health independent of your weight. So for type 2 diabetics or people that are at risk for type 2 diabetes, exercise, even without a single pound of weight loss, is already super helpful. So exercise is very important. But I think the best is if you manage to Change your diet and keep up an exercise regime that doesn't have to be drastic. A good balance. Uh, but yeah. a balanced one. That is, I think, one of the strong components. And, and this is something where science actually moves towards. It's something that also interests us very much. What is uh, the individual – where is this individual difference in energy balance coming from? And why do some people drop massively when they stop eating? And why do others keep their energy levels at the same uh, even though they eat less. If we could understand this, that could maybe help us. Whether it's a nutritional aspect or goes more towards pharmacological research is difficult to say mm -hmm. at the moment mm -hmm. because we just don't understand the underlying principles. How do I go about what my particular factors are? Let's say, okay, is it in my case I have biological issues or it's hereditary or do I need to change my lifestyle? Is that basically simply trial and error that I have to try different things and see how everything works? Or or can I go to a doctor and say, hey, can you run a bunch of tests on me and tell you if I have to do this or that? At the moment, I would say I wouldn't trust these tests very much. They ask these tests. This is uh, what you would call precision nutrition, right? Basically, tailor-made nutrition based on an individual's makeup, genetic, epigenetic. The research is ongoing, and I hope that in the future there might be tests that can help you choose a certain path. At the moment, I will be very honest with you, I think it's better to check yourself, mm -hmm. see how does it influence your body weight, how does it influence your health, how does it influence your psychological uh, well-being, right? Because this is absolutely essential. If you hate that diet, you might as well not mm -hmm, do it because mm -hmm. you will not adhere to it anyway, right? And if you can get a good combination of all three factors, then this is probably what's right for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can have good coaches that can help you do that. 
and that understand these principles and can help you because it's obviously you have to yeah it's it's uh, the body tries to defend body weight as i said right and uh, you are working against for example a natural urge to eat to keep your weight up but you have to find the path where there's the least resistance and at the moment i have to say yes everybody needs to figure this out for themselves i wouldn't so much think about recommendations you can try obviously mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. things that are out there that are tested and that are known to work for some people right Intermittent fasting. I know a few people. It works super well for these people. It works extremely well for me. I yeah. mean, um, I started with the 16-8 about three or four years ago. It was at a time when I was super busy, long hours, a lot of stress. And I started to realize that my... I mean, I was never a really bad eater or like only junk food. I mean, I had a fairly okay diet, but I just realized, you know, and my sugar intake, especially when you are under stress, you know, it wasn't always ideal. So um, that diet worked extremely well for me. And it, I mean, I saw the first results after after a few weeks. Yeah. So, so this um, is a perfect example, right? But another person might work better exactly. with a different type of intermittent fast. Mm -hmm. Then another person might work better by cutting out all the sugar, right? Another person would work very well by cutting out all the meat. We know that too much meat is unhealthy, right? No discussion about this. Whether vegetarian is better than a little meat, I would be very careful about that statement at the moment without a bit more data. But And the next person can completely cut out uh, saturated fats, right? And, mm -hmm. and you have to figure this out for yourself. What is a system that works well? I just urge people to have a bit closer look at the processed foods. This is something that in the scientific community is well recognized. I have a feeling this is not that well recognized in the general public because obviously processed foods are easy to get by. Mm -hmm. I wanted to run a trial on processed vegetarian foods. Difficult to find funding for this. It's not easy to convince people to test this. Are they really healthier? Or are they maybe as unhealthy as mm -hmm. a regular processed diet like a McDonald's Happy Meal, right? I'm not so sure. Uh, and I, I'd like to find out, right, uh, whether this is the case or not. But uh, Actually, that's a really interesting question because um, if we have to scale vegetarian food, I mean, I don't know what percentage of, of the worldwide population um, has a vegetarian or a vegan diet. Um, I assume it's a fairly small, small percentage at this point. But if this gains in popularity, I mean, obviously, that production needs to be scaled and uh, or you or you don't think I, I think meat production takes a lot of uh, resources so if you would put this into vegetable production oh, okay. yeah. you would probably uh, come out on top right it takes way more corn to feed a cow or feed to feed a cow mm -hmm. if you would produce this as uh, vegetables or fruits i think this should work from what i learn mm -hmm. know about uh, the energy requirements or the feed requirements. Uh, don't, don't, I'm not vegetarian. Right? I, I, I'm quite honest, but uh, I, I see the aspect, and this is probably rather more sustainability aspect than an actually a nutrition aspect. Mm -hmm. 
And that, of course, brings us to vegetarian, vegan versus meat consumption. Huge topic, very politically charged. Also, it seems there is a, a big division and a variety of opinions. What is your take? So, let's start. Vegan food for me is a deficiency diet. Yeah, you're cutting out essential food groups and you need to supplement. It's, it's basically impossible to keep up a vegan diet without supplements. This cannot be good. And we don't know what else we're cutting out, right? Uh, this is always under the assumption that we know all essential components. Uh, we found out a lot later, usually, when we cut out something, that something important was missing. And I have a bad feeling that if you cut out um, animal products completely, that we might in run into other problems. I'm talking now adults. For children, I think it's quite clear that a vegan diet is probably not healthy. Uh, if you do it perfectly, you might get along. But there's quite a few interesting studies from countries where vegan diets are part of the culture. And this is probably not a good way to go. Now, the vegetarian diet is clearly better than the people that eat huge amounts of meat. There's no discussion about this. Unfortunately, the comparisons that are made are usually based on epidemiological studies, right? These are food questionnaires where we know that people don't report the truth. That's well documented that this is unfortunately people not actively lie, but they have a different recollection of what they eat. And secondly, the comparisons you see tend to compare these very unhealthy meat eaters to the vegetarians who are probably a bit more health, con health conscious. Whether So, too much meat, no discussion is unhealthy. In this case, vegetarian is better. Whether tiny bit of meat on top of a vegetarian diet is not even better than vegetarian or equally good, difficult to say at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's just no hard evidence for it. The problem is, is how will you study something like this? I, I'm saying we have a problem with correlation and causation, but this is also because you can, don't, can, cannot run a 12-year or 15-year interventional trial on a group. Mm -hmm. You have to rely on questionnaires, and the problem is that if somebody is a bit more health conscious and looks at his food, probably exercises a bit more, and you don't know where this health effect in the end is coming from, right? Mm -hmm. My honest personal opinion is little meat, probably high-quality meat, and uh, then as veg vegetarian as possible, right? Uh, that, that would be my take for the rather healthy version. I would not cut out meat completely because this comes back to my original point about uh, components from meat. I think we don't know yet everything what's in there and we don't know if there's something in there that we might need later in life at a certain point and it's stupid if you find out 30 years later that you're missing an essential component and you're causing thereby a secondary or tertiary disorder, right? You, you mentioned kids, which I think is incredibly important and since we are doing a lot of kids events and have a lot of parents who come with their kids, I think this topic is also incredibly important also when it comes to dairy products 
what is your take with kids? Isn't it important that they get their calcium and, and, and all that? Um, this is clear. They have to get their calcium. And this is why dairy products are important for kids, right? That's why very few kids have a lactose intolerant, right? They, they, you develop this later in life because then you stop uh, needing that many uh, dairy products. But you don't need huge amounts. You don't need a liter of milk a day, right, uh, to, to get your calcium intake. Um, Look, I'm, I'm quite honest. I maintain that a variable diet with many food groups and focusing on the vegetables is probably the most healthy one. But I'm against cutting out stuff completely. We are evolutionary. We were trimmed to eat everything, right? This is, uh, this is how we develop. So it's a pretty good chance that we might need a little bit of everything. Which brings me to the next point, uh, which is food diets and allergies. Um, I remember when I grew up in the 70s, you know, in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, food allergies were no topic or or maybe people didn't um, know how to spot allergies uh, or was it basically because we had much more of a balanced diet and, of course, we had less processed food? My personal opinion is it's probably processed food. All the, all the chemicals, all the preservatives, um, all that stuff that is showing up everywhere. I mean, even, even if you buy a takeout sushi somewhere, you know, it's covered in sugar, basically. And, and I think a lot of people, they don't realize that. So, what's your opinion about food allergies? I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on immunology, so I can't give you a very good answer on this. As I said, it would be very interesting to talk to a food immunologist about this. Um, it's clear that the number of food allergies has increased. I'm very careful to say why this is. It could be that it's the processed food, it's one option, it correlates well. But as I said, I cannot accuse other people of making that mistake mm -hmm. and now make it myself, right? I don't think there's any data, hard data, that tells you it's the uh, processing that causes the allergies. It could be environmental factors. The world has changed. We're exposed to a lot of other chemicals in the drinking water. So there's other options that could explain these things. But honestly, there I'm not so familiar with the newest literature and mm -hmm. This would necessitate to talk to somebody who is, right, and could give you a better opinion on this. I, 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 honestly, yeah. they, I, I try not to make the same mistake that I accuse other people yeah, of yeah. making. So <laughs> I, I, I can only speculate, really. Any, any thoughts on gluten intolerance? I think that seems to be the most common one right now. I mean, I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't know maybe one or two people who are not gluten intolerant. I, I mean, it's just... Again, same thing. This has appeared very quickly and the numbers have increased massively. Uh, it, when I was younger, I don't think I knew anybody. Now, I know a lot of people who are gluten intolerant, but the reason, again, it could be processing. It could be, but it could also be pesticides that you use. So many options, so many variables have changed. But I would guess that there are some good food immunologists out there that know the current literature a bit better and can give you a more scientifically based answer than I could. Feel free to recommend someone if you happen to come across somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to do so. I'll think about it. Okay. 
All right. Thank you so much. This has been a very interesting conversation. And uh, hopefully I'll see you again at some point. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.